0: Human Enterprise is a conversation with leaders, entrepreneurs, investors, and ordinary people about what makes work meaningful, what makes work work, and how to drive the best performance from the people that make up the enterprise. We talk about how to create business value through culture, leadership, digital innovation, and the employee experience. What are those unmistakably human touches that make an enterprise great, and what can we learn from them? My guest today is Aaron Dignan, founder of the organizational design and transformation agency, The Ready. He's author of recently published Brave New Work, a fabulous book about building high-performance companies fit for the future of work and builders helping us understand what's stopping us from doing the best work of our lives. And I even volunteered to drive to Vermont and back recently so I could have enough time in the car to listen to the book on Audible. In this episode, Aaron outlines the fine line that every
1: enterprise treads between purpose, people, and profit. Being the owner of of an empty factory in a community that is destitute is actually not much of a win at all. We talk about the power of self-organizing teams, you know, it's the same thing that astounds me when someone shows you like a cross section of an ant colony. Wow, I'm so, I'm so blown away by what was made and what was created, and the beauty of what was created without, a, without a leader, without an architect, without someone driving. The underlying motivations of employees. You know, people are not very well motivated by carrots and sticks. They're well motivated by autonomy and mastery and purpose and connectedness. And, and that mastery piece is about the sense that I'm learning and I'm growing and I'm developing my skills. And the harmony we should strive for in our own human enterprises. It's figuring out the balance between individuality and, and collective behavior. It's the it's that we're all coming whole as ourselves and authentically ourselves, and we have our individuality, and yet when we come together, we share just enough purpose or just enough agreements about how we'll show up that there's a coherence, that there's a a, a super organism happening. Um, And when both of those things are happening at the same time, that's, that's pretty amazing. Suck up some of Aaron's EQ, IQ for your HQ. Enjoy.
0: Aaron, thank you for joining me on this edition of The Human Enterprise. Thank you, Barney. Happy to be here. Um, before we get into the meat of your approach and, and the brave new work, can, can we start with you and tell us a little bit about how you come to focus on building kind of healthy companies versus building uh, you know healthy products and services? Why are you focused on the enterprise, <laughs> the internal enterprise rather than the external markets?
1: Yeah, I, no, it makes sense to ask the question. I mean, I, I think that... Um, My experience has been one of kind of following my curiosity and and asking questions. And I, you know, I started with questions about how people come together around brands and cults and community and kind of what are the things that make us act irrationally in service of those loyalties, those connections. And then I noticed that people were acting differently and, and that behavior was being changed quite a bit by technology companies. So I followed that path for about a decade, and it was a question of, you know, what are all these disruptive uh, exponential technologies, and how are they going to change culture and shape culture and, and affect organizations? And then, um, as I followed that thread, I started to notice that <clears throat> the problem wasn't actually the technologies. The, the problem was our ability to adapt large human systems, or, and frankly, any size human systems to um, to change and to do it in a way that serves us and serves you know our, our many constituents um, and so then I sort of became enamored with that question the question of like are the, is it possible to have adaptivity and and, and ultimately humanity at scale um, in institutions both you know for-profit nonprofit governmental etc um, and so I wanted to walk about around that and that kind of led me to this world of new ways of working and, and the future of work and and all the content that ultimately fed both the book and my current practice, the ready. So for me, it's just been, I just keep taking scoops out of the ice cream tub trying to find the bottom. And while, while I have done product oriented and, and, you know, service oriented businesses in the past that were more focused on, you know, the thing itself and, and, and the user in that way, um, I just find this more interesting, like the the richness and the complexity of how people come together to solve problems and create amazing new things is, to me, the most interesting problem.
0: And do you see this as a sort of, um, you know, the antidote, the yin and yang of at the end of the digital revolution where we've spent two decades, (laughs) right, focused on a large part around digitization of business? Sure. Uh, and products and services, as well as I think you know, we've spent past two decades very, very focused on the customer, which kind of leaves a dearth of experience for the employee. You, you know, do you do you feel as if you're filling that that void of of companies not focused enough on their own kind of inner workings and on the needs of their employees? Is that where we're at? I think
1: that there is a hollowness to to anything without balance, and and I think that you know in the 80s roughly we started to become very enamored with shareholder value, and instead of you know kind of thinking about all the other players in in the game, um, and then technology came about, and initially the theory of you know people in in early early Silicon Valley and in the early internet, the theory was this will be this great you know, egalitarian connector. This will really like reveal the best of human nature and the best of our ability to kind of connect and and create and solve problems together. And in fact, it was weaponized then in service of that shareholder. Um, and so a lot of the technology and the digitization that we have experienced has been about how do we squeeze more juice out of the orange, right? How do we optimize? How do we automate? How do we kind of eliminate, uh, in many ways, eliminate humans from, the process of value creation, um, and it's really still, you know, married to that ideology that uh, that businesses are are wristwatches that they're that they're complicated systems that can be tuned that they are machines. We literally refer to them as machines with regularity. So, um, so I think that all, that all went down, and it's not to say that it doesn't work, right? I mean, in some ways you know, automation and, and ultimately machine intelligence and robotics and things like that, they, like, they do work. <laughs> they have dramatically improved productivity in some places. But, but the ultimate victory there is quite a hollow one. I mean, I think, you know, being, being the owner of, of an empty factory in a community that is destitute is actually not much of a win at all. Um, and so I think a lot of leaders and founders and boards and others are starting to, at least in their subconscious, if, if not in their conscious mind, Um, wake up to the fact that like, we actually need something more out of work. There's a, there's a missing soulfulness and meaning and connection. And frankly, even when we do optimize in those ways, we still, um, we still aren't achieving our full potential because the people in those systems are disengaged, unhappy, you know, unable to, to do their best work. So it's very rare that I walk into a system where they're like, yeah, we're automated to the hilt and, and optimized to the hilt. And everybody's thrilled. You know, our, all, all of our employees and customers are just so thrilled with how things are going, um, which in some ways is part of the human condition because we always, you know, we always want more. But I think in, in other ways, it's kind of an indictment of, of just the way we work today and how, how much room it really leaves for us to show up better. So I I recall that you used a quote. I can't remember from
0: who, but it was I think the quote goes something like ninety-four percent of problems in business are systems driven and only six percent are people driven.
1: Yeah, it's an Edward Stemming uh quote, W Edward Stemming quote, which is a little bit apocryphal, perhaps. There's quite a bit of debate about how exactly he said that. <laughs> um but but he you know he said a version of it. Uh yeah, that one that one is is definitely one that I subscribe to. But is
0: it So if you are a doctor prescribing an ill patient the sort of the the road forward, you're saying that um, the way to help bring humanity, both from a company point of view as well as a broader social point of view, back into the enterprise, the best way to do that is through an operating system. Is that where you land?
1: That is where I land. I mean, I think there are two, there are two polarities here, both of which have merit. One is that um, in order for systems to change, people have to change. And so there's quite a bit of work on people's, you know, growing their consciousness and their awareness and their self-awareness and their, you know, their ability to kind of lead from a different perspective than what we've seen in the past. So that's one view. And, and some, some people that hold that view hold it quite militantly that like, we can't fix systems until the people themselves are different and then the other view is, well, actually, if you change the system, it changes the behavior and ultimately the identity of the people in the system, right? And of course, neither one is right. Like they both, it's, it's, a, it's a give and take relationship in both directions. But what I find is that um, trying to change people individually and one at a time and actually actually trying to go and get them to be the way you want them to be is both really, really difficult and potentially a little bit colonialist. <laughs> And so, um, you know, there's a Ben Franklin quote in the book that I love, which is like, if you want to know how hard it is to change people, try to change yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, even when you want to be different, that you're, it's still really, really hard. But what I find is that we're learning so much about the way systems shape our identity and the way we relate and the way we show up um, from a from a sort of philosophical level and also just from like a behavioral economics level. Like if you change, you know, if you change the height of the sugared cereal in the cereal aisle, kids will eat more or less sugared cereal. So, so to say that the system doesn't affect, you know, who we are and how we show up is, is rubbish. And I think, um, it's so much easier. It's such a much better lever, to, to play with the system. So rather than saying, how do we eliminate bias in our decision-making you know, at an individual level, like rewire our brains, we could say, how do we introduce a decision-making process that in its very nature helps us work on the bias issue, right? That by its very nature doesn't allow a one perspective decision to happen. Um, so, you know, and if we have a problem with Um, you know, theft rather than, you know, punishing people and focusing on it at an individual level, are there things we can do at a systemic level that create more trust and more sense of community and more sense of collective identity that will affect that? So I kind of come down on that side of it, that it's a bigger lever um, and that fundamentally, it has, you know, it has the ability to change not just the behavior, but also who we are. Like if you, if you participate in a process that's different than your natural identity that pushes you in a, in a positive direction four or five or 50 times, you do, you do literally start to change. And so I often say like, it's not the fish, it's the aquarium. Um, and I'm, you know, and I'm definitely an advocate for that. And while that's going on, it will reveal opportunities for individuals to do some of their own work. And I hope they do. Like, I hope they seek that out and go do that work. But I don't. I don't necessarily need to be the architect of that.
0: So you you lay out the operating system canvas, which is uh, it's twelve areas of the canvas, is it not? um, And those areas cover purpose, authority, structure, and there's a sort of different elements that, that you work through. You also advocate that. It's not a linear process, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) So you're you're, you're sort of covering a a range of different bases. Do you feel as if you can sort of start anywhere on the canvas? Or or do you always try and bring people back to some of the fundamental starting points, let's say, like purpose and, you know, the existential question, why do we exist?
1: I, what, generally, what we've learned is that um, just starting where people are is the best place to start because it solves the problem of motivation and, and kind of who's directing who. So from an autonomy standpoint, I'd rather just ask the question that you talked about in the introduction, you know, what's stopping you from doing the best work of your life to a team? And it could be a leadership team. It could be a team at the edge. doesn't matter. Um, But, you know, ask that question and then then based on the answer, start to unpack, well, where might we play then? So if the answer is, you know, we make decisions really slowly, then maybe we start playing in the authority space. Or if the answer is we have meetings to prepare for meetings and I want to scratch my eyes out, then maybe we start in the meeting space. But while we're doing that, because it's interconnected and because it's not, you know, a clean kind of mutually exclusive and comprehensively exhaustive framework, Um, It's really just a mirror, and and it's quite overlapping. Um, We also ask the question then, well, what else is connected to this? So you say that we have too many meetings. Well, why do we have too many meetings? Is it because we don't have the information we need? Is it because we don't trust each other? Is it because we can't make decisions in our regular work, so we have to make them in this room, in this setting? And it usually will reveal then other spaces in the canvas that are playing a role in that phenomenon and what we can then do is sort of chase it back to, you know, maybe not a root, because again, in complex systems, there isn't always a root cause, right? It's more phenomenological than that. There's more pieces feeding it. But maybe we can understand a few of the big of the big pieces, right? And maybe maybe it does trace its way back to purpose playing a role or lack of clarity about purpose playing a role. However, I'm also a big fan of, even if there is like a huge, you know, dilemma about purpose sitting in the business, but that's not where people want to start. And they want to make some progress on how they decide or how they meet or how they share information or how they, you know, compensate each other or what have you. I'm totally game for that too, right? Because we don't have to fix every problem at the same time. And and also we will always be in in dialogue with the system like we're always going to be changing something we're always going to be adapting something so so the fact that we might have issues hiding in the canvas or nested in the in the operating system that might even be quite fundamental to me doesn't mean we have to start there because in some ways what we're practicing and what we're learning when we first start doing this work with teams is not fixing anything because again you know you can't fix a complex system you can't fix a garden you can only manage it Um, but rather just this act of looping, this act of going like, what's the tension? What's the opportunity? How do we, what do we want to try? And how does it help or hurt or move us kind of sideways? And so I'll, I'll, I'd love to learn that practice wherever there's energy to learn it. And so a a large part of your approach
0: uh, with, with companies is to help train them to ask the right questions and to give them a framework through which to build their operating system capabilities is, is that right
1: yeah You're to not- a certain extent to a certain extent we're actually just trying to um, have questions emerge and teach people how to follow those questions so and interestingly like my favorite part about the work is the questions we ask about the operating system on day one are very different than the questions we ask on day 300 and so when I see new and more interesting, and more radical questions appearing, I know we're doing the work. Um, and if the if the questions sort of stall out, then I know that we've, you know, we've missed an opportunity somewhere.
0: Do your engagements have to start with the CEO or the leadership team? I mean, can you really make any progress in an organization <laughs> unless you get their buy-in?
1: Yes and no. I mean, I think... Um, I think there's a there's a big disconnect between what people think they can affect and what they actually can and when you just look at the the spaces in the OS just mm-hmm. as we've outlined it I mean and again this is not this is not comprehensive but these are places to play um you know how we share information and how we meet and how we decide and how we flow you know the work through our group and decide you know what we say yes and no to and how we treat our members and you know, all those sorts of things. They There are lots of places to play, I think, within a team, assuming that at least the leader or the manager of that team is willing to play. Um, and even if they're not, there are places we can play just as individuals. So I do think there are ways to, to make progress. However, if you want to move to a system that prioritizes autonomy and transparency and consent and, you know, has more of an abundance mindset rather than a scarcity mindset, like, yeah, that, that ultimately means that people who hold power are going to have to choose to play and they're going to have to choose to you know move around that power in different ways. And that could be CEO, that could be a leadership team, that could even be people that just hold influence and reputational power in the system um, playing the game. So, so yeah, it does not hurt. <laughs> and I much prefer when I can start there. But I've had I've had great successes, you know, starting in other places and then creating the the question in the leadership of what's happening over there. That like yeah. somehow this unit is doing amazing work and is different than the rest of us. What you know? What can we learn from that? So it's sometimes I think that actually is quite a powerful uh, move. And Aaron, when you think about the future
0: of workspace and some of the more pioneering and interesting examples that you've talked about in your books, um. What excites you about the future of work and some of the experimentation around um, organizational structures and open-sourced operating systems? What, what excites you most the, uh, in terms of what you're seeing?
1: I think what excites me the most about this stuff is the kind of uh, emergent innovation and problem-solving and outcomes that can occur when you're not overgripping and when there's sufficient constraints in place for self-organization, you know, it's the same thing that astounds me when someone shows you like a cross section of an ant colony or, you know, or, or a coral reef or something where you're just like, wow, I'm so, I'm so blown away by what was made and what was created and the beauty of what was created without a, without a leader, without an architect, without someone driving. Um, that's what that's what excites me the most because I think at the end of the day, while you know while we all have our own gifts, like there you know there aren't enough there aren't enough architects, there aren't enough um, you know people in the world that are going to drive us to better places. And in fact, even when they try to, the system leads us in directions that kind of lead us astray. So. Even if you're a great leader with great ideas and great values, it's very easy to get swept up in the economic operating system and, and certain capitalist outcomes and extractive outcomes. It's very easy to get swept up in the, you know, take the company public ideology, um, fee, you know, serving the whims of your investors, et cetera, that, you know, that despite your greatness lead you into, in, in certain directions. And then, and then there are these other systems, these companies that I looked at and talked about um, That tend to have manifested like very different outcomes. They're not funded in the same way. They're not growing in the same way. They're not trying to achieve the same ends. And yet they're doing remarkable, scaled, massively disruptive things that are disruptive in a way that is not um, one dimensional. That's not just like purely extractive. The way you know a traditional sort of tech disruption success story goes, they're disruptive in a way that is affecting you know the entire community and everyone that's involved in a positive way. So I just like the externalities of this stuff a lot better. I like the idea that a company can just somehow find its way to a successful position and also um, be doing that in a very non-traditional way that really uh, serves everybody. And I think when you look at the problems we're facing, uh, climate, political um, social, you know, economic inequality, et cetera. Like they, they really call for rather than a centralized or a top-down solution, they call for some of these emergent solutions. So I'm and excited. And what are some examples
0: of those solutions that, you, that you're that you thinking of?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, thinking about, uh, something like healthcare, for example, one of the cases I cover in the book is the story of Burtzorg, which was first highlighted in, um, well, not first, but most recently highlighted quite well in Fred Lelou's book, Reinventing Organizations. And, you know, the when we look at our healthcare system, we see a problem of too much expense and too much bureaucracy and too much red tape and this whole idea of like measuring healthcare down to the penny as a way of delivering the service, right? And so like it's all paperwork and and detail oriented management of that bureaucracy and so we have you know some of the highest healthcare expenses in the world at least here in the united states uh, for what we get and then you look at a system like bertsorg that basically said what if we didn't measure that stuff what if we didn't put a stopwatch on nurses when they were doing these home visits what if we didn't measure the same metrics that everyone else measures and instead just entrusted people for whom it is their calling to deliver healthcare to work with their local community in a self-managed way and provide care in the way they see fit and see what happens then. And what happens then is, on every measure, and there are some great studies out there you can look at by firms like Ernst and Young and others. Um, by every measure, the system at Bertzorg is as good or better at producing outcomes, and it saves the Dutch healthcare system like hundreds of millions of euros every year. So it's an interesting example of like going the opposite direction of the traditional culture through the, you know, through the wisdom of a more decentralized system that really relies on its people to make human choices in human contexts, but yet also gets you, you know, the benefit as well. In the same way that like when Patagonia says, don't buy this jacket, um, you know, recycle your old jacket, they end up selling more stuff. Like it's, you know, there are ways I think to, um, there are ways, I think, to sort of get both when we when we focus on different priorities. And I think these systems do that well. Um, another example I talk about in the book that I love from in terms of like an emergent solution is the High Line in New York City. It's an amazing, you know, above ground elevated park that's on an old, um, you know, basically railroad track, uh, delivery track that was, you know, running through the west side of the city. And it was one of those things where no traditional bureaucratic governmental organization was gonna say, Hey, we should put a park on this weird elevated, you know, train track instead of tearing it down and making room for more buildings. But um, but left alone for a while, the grass started to grow up there and, and the weeds started to grow. And a couple, you know, enterprising young, random individuals who had no business making the case for that, saw that and said, That kind of looks like a park and what would it be if it were a park and just following that emergent thread inviting others to see that too and then suddenly you have what is arguably one of the most popular tourist destinations in the city now a beautiful park that has elevated the property value of almost everything around it you in know in, you know on a surface that literally was pulling down the property value of everything around it a decade ago so those kinds of stories i you know really excite me
0: and um. What do you think about sort of organizations, the enterprise's responsibilities to their employees now in terms of providing them learning space to develop their skills, um, and, and sort of empower them to take control of their destiny, I suppose.
1: Um, well, yeah, I mean, in some ways I think the, there's a misunderstanding about motivation that, um, although it continually gets, you know, kind of, uh, outlined and and described in the research doesn't really land in corporate America, which is, you know, people are not very well motivated by carrots and sticks. They're well motivated by autonomy and mastery and purpose and connectedness. And, And that mastery piece is about the sense that I'm learning and I'm growing and I'm developing my skills. And that's really, you know, that's what motivates people. And in some ways, I think it's a misunderstanding about the next set of generations that have come into the workforce from the millennials on down. Which is, you know, some people perceive them as very greedily pursuing, um, you know, promotions and, and accolades in the workplace. When what I see more often than not is more like a, a desire, a real hunger for for growth and for growth opportunities, for play, for ways to learn and to flex and, and you know, build those skills. So I think it's um, I think it's fundamental to to work. I also think it's not separate from work. I don't think we learn best in a classroom setting or a conference setting. Um, I think we learn best in the work, on the work, uh, when we're when we're sort of open to feedback and open to the feedback of both the outcomes and the people around us. Um, I think that's really what we what we need and and what we crave. Um, And in some way, I think that has to become kind of the new identity of the firm when it's competing for talent. Like that's the employer brand that I want to see. One of, the, one of the organizations I looked at in the book, um, Johnsonville, literally defines their purpose as helping people grow. So it's like we, we exist and make sausages in order to help people grow. Not We don't help people grow in order to make better sausages, um, which is a weird twist and, and quite a profound one, I think. And it's probably the most extreme case of that that I saw in, in the book was you know literally saying like we exist to do that. Um, to to just have a space where people can grow. And the fact that we happen to do this for a living is incidental to that. And so that piece
0: around mastery,
1: because I think it's a really
0: interesting idea, is is just that. It's about giving them runway to, in some ways self-determine, but in other ways just sort of continually become the best version of themselves in the roles that they're pursuing.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, in some ways, it's it's no different than how we grow and learn as people and as children. Um, deliberate practice, uh, apprentices with masters, where mastery is possible, um, having deliberate practice and the opportunity to fail um, and learn from that. You know, learn from that failure. I think that's really what it's about. And in many ways, this <clears throat> this idea of managers as insurers of perfect execution is directly oppositional to that. Because essentially it means I'm going to jump in and blow the whistle or take over or be the hero any time that I feel like we're at risk of not having a perfect execution, and the expense, <clears throat> the expense of that is going to be your learning. Like I'm literally going to steal that from you, uh, and instead I'm going to I'm going to come in and fix it. Um, and you know, if you think about your job not as ensuring perfect execution, but actually as ensuring continually growing capability, then you have a very different approach. I think as a manager or a leader or a founder which is like what conditions have to be here so that people are continually increasing their capability. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think it's very interesting. Aaron, what books do you read? What sort of stimulates your, your, your thinking and what do you recommend that other people should take a look at to get inspired?
1: There are so many books, uh, as you saw before we got on this, on this call <laughs> there, you know, 400 behind me. Um, but a couple that I've been coming back to lately, one is um, the 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership by Jim Dethmer and Diana Chapman and Kaylee Warner-Klemp, um, which I think is really interesting because at least for me, you know, I've always been a very, in my head, very intellectual student of management. And so I, I think at a theory level, I, you know, I've gone quite far in the last decade to really understand, like, Structure and authority and strategy and these things at a very almost like a physics level, um, but not. But I haven't spent as much time working on myself and working on my kind of emotional intelligence in these systems. Um, so what you know, even though we might we might be inhabiting a structure that I understand intellectually um, quite well, the uh, the emotional intelligence to navigate that structure and be in that structure with others is a different animal entirely. So I, I've been coming back to that to try to grow my my own, um, kind of different kinds of intelligence. Uh, so I think that's an important one. I think for, you know, for leaders that want to inhabit these systems and do it well, his, uh, his book and his work, um, along with Diana and Kaylee is, is quite profoundly good. So that's one. Um, another one that I have, that I often hand to people is there's a whole movement, uh, in our space called beyond budgeting that was started many, many years ago, decades ago, in fact, um, that's been onto this stuff for a long time and, and very early, early adopters and pioneers. Um, but it's, but there's so much literature about it that it can be hard to find an entry point. But Dr. Steve Morledge wrote, um, a little book. So it's called the little book of beyond budgeting. It's like 40 pages. Um, and it is, I think it's a really tight distillation of, Specifically, the focus around how to move away from the command and control annual budgeting theater, um, but it also touches on some of the other aspects of the of the beyond budgeting movement that are more about brave new work and more about you know autonomy and and kind of allowing the system to be decentralized, etc. So those are two that I'm uh, pretty Fantastic. excited about. Yeah, at the moment. Good. Um, I've got. Three or four final
0: questions looking for short, brief answers.
1: Um, <laughs> okay, <so> lightning round.
0: <laughs> What's your most successful habit?
1: Mm, most successful habit? Lately, I have, uh, well, I'd say I have two. Um, one, I completely gave up uh, caffeine of all kinds. So no soda, no coffee, no no caffeinated tea years ago. And I've actually stuck with it. So even in times of immense stress, etc. I've stayed with that and I think that serves me pretty well um, and then a more recent one uh, is that I have started climbing um, every weekday so I'm, I'm going to the gym and just you know using the body uh, you know Monday through Friday when I'm home which has been the first time in my life I've ever really gotten that kind of physical activity in intermixed with this much work <laughs> so I've been enjoying that as well <laughs> what's uh, your secret ingredient to your happiness hmm I think it's just perspective. It's sort of a form of gratitude. But I, I think I learned this from my parents. Whenever I'm feeling, you know, a, a feeling of anger or stress or resentment or or jealousy or worry, I do always just sort of take a step back and look at like, hmm, things are pretty great. <laughs> like, it's, it's all going to be OK. Um, and just sit with that. So I've, luckily, I've been able to kind of manage that in most cases. What's a piece of advice to the next generation? Um, Don't chase complicated work. If the thing that you're interested in can be turned into a checklist, uh, find something else. Find something that cannot be made into a checklist. And finally, what are those
0: unmistakably human touches that make an enterprise great?
1: In some ways, I think it's... um, It's figuring out the balance between individuality and, and collective behavior. It's the, it's that we're all coming whole as ourselves and authentically ourselves and we have our individuality and yet when we come together we share just enough purpose or just enough agreements about how we'll show up that there's a coherence, that there's a, a, a super organism happening. Um, and when both of those things are happening at the same time, that's that's pretty amazing.
0: Aaron, it's been great to catch up with you. Thank you very much for joining me on this edition of The Human Enterprise. My pleasure. Thank you.